The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Good morning. Well, that was pretty good. It was passable at least. Let's do that one more time. Good morning. Much better. It is wonderful to get to be with you this morning. Those of you in the sanctuary and those of you in Worship East and even those of you who are worshiping with us online, welcome. We are excited that you are here today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. As you're turning there, my name's Ryan Musser. I am a church member here and I have been honored to have had the uh, wonderful chance to preach the last few weeks and really enjoyed it. And we have been talking about a sermon series called After Easter. We've been looking at these little stories after the resurrection that happened to the people who were following Jesus and sometimes the people who had no intention of following Jesus. And these little stories that happened that changed their lives and as Easter began to change everything, it did it on a very personal basis and those lives changed other lives, it changed other lives and it just kept going out to people that you never expected. We've heard a lot of stories all the way through and today we have a different passage all about a very similar thing. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God." Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Now, if you have read much of the New Testament, you might have realized that Paul, the Apostle Paul, that same guy who was Saul blinded on the road to Damascus last week and got back up and found that when his eyes were opened, he saw the reality of Easter, that it was real. That same guy becomes Paul, the Apostle, and goes out. He had an affinity of the example of running our faith. That was a a metaphor he liked quite a bit. Galatians 2, 2. I went up in response to a revelation and then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Galatians chapter 5. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? One of my favorites in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 Beginning in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air. But I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. I like this verse in particular because Paul spends time talking about the fact that we are to run hard. 
He's concerned that despite all of the preaching of the gospel and the believing the right things, he could be disqualified if he merely goes through the motions of this race. For him, he says he has to put aside his sin and run with intention of of winning, following, faithing, belief in action, not just rote belief or rote action. It has to be everything he's got. Paul knows that failure is an option. There are those who talk about Jesus and say they believe all the right things that fail. We know this because Jesus tells us of the sheep and the goats. There are those who say all the right things and cognitively assent their belief to the right things and yet do not follow in this race. It is possible to fail. I love the show Mythbusters and their key premise was failure is always an option. Once you know that, it makes you want to do something else. I like the passage where Paul talks about the end of his life. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And that brings us back to the book of Hebrews. Now, I want to start off by saying we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. This is the only book in the Bible for which it is supposed that it might actually be written by a woman. We don't know. No idea. But what we do know almost certainly, is that it is not the Apostle Paul. Even the first and second century followers and the theologians and the commentators all wrote down that this wasn't Paul. They didn't know who it was, and it doesn't really matter. We know that it probably came after his other writings. See, Paul had already been talking about our faith as running. Galatians was written somewhere around 58 and 59 AD, making it the earliest writings of Paul. 1 Corinthians, so Galatians is 48 and 49 AD. 1 Corinthians is 55 AD, right around there. Hebrews is a later writing. We don't exactly know when. We know it was written sometime before 70 AD. Maybe it was written at the same time as 1 Corinthians. We don't know. But what we do know is this. Paul has already been talking about our, our faith not as a walk with Christ, but a run. The Apostle Paul, who'd been blinded on that road to Damascus, when his eyes are opened and he sees that Easter is real, he starts preaching and proclaiming to everyone that will listen, and even those who don't want to, that Jesus Christ is God himself. He is passionate. And in any case, he starts this analogy that our faith is a run, and he hands it off to the next generation. And the author of Hebrews, whoever he or she is, carries it forward. Verses two and three from the passage we read are basically Paul, almost identical. Here, it's this long distance race in Hebrews chapter 12. And and the guy starts talking about the things we need to throw off. If you're gonna do some distance running, you don't wanna take everything you have with you. There are things you don't wanna carry along. And so, He starts talking about that and the author says, look, we need to cast off a few things. We need to cast off the things which encumber us and entangle us. 
When it says encumber us, it's talking about weight. Now, some of you probably have on some pretty nice clothes today. And you may be thinking, these are not my running clothes. These shoes are quite heavy and they're not supportive enough. And frankly, um, I just would not want to carry all this with me. Maybe I've got things in my pockets or you brought a bag with you and this isn't your idea of a time to go run a 5K. Some of us, myself mostly, are also carrying around other weight, body weight. Weight that is not particularly useful for doing any distance running not muscles that absorb the impact of the asphalt, no, or even those to propel me forward, just extra girth that I'm carrying around, completely unproductive for the task at hand. The author uses this analogy, one that a lot of people can relate to, to remind us that there are things in our life that whatever they may be, good as they may be, useful in other ways as they may be, they can weigh us down if our one goal is actually to run a race for Christ. All kinds of good things in our life, things in our job, things with our families, things that would promote us and build us up, things we might otherwise find as good that St. Augustine might call inordinate love if we put them too high on the list. If they come before the intensity and purpose of running the race for Christ, then they are weights wearing us down. And he says, cast them off. And then he talks about those things that entangle us and snare us, the sin which clings to us, using the analogy of a long robe or flowing clothing. There are things that you don't want to run in. Choir, if you were in your robes, not a great thing to be running around in. You might get snagged on different things. There are reasons why our track clothes and the things when we have to actually run are shorter and tighter. And the reason is you don't want to be carrying around things where you're going to fall. You don't want shoelaces flopping all over the place. You want everything to be very much out of your way. It has to facilitate what you're doing and not get in the way. And the author wants to remind us that there are many things in our life which are not aiding us in running the race with Christ. Sin has a way of doing that. We put things out of order. We get things in the way of what our purpose is, who we're called to be. There are things we struggle with and we have to cast those aside. This is almost exactly word for word what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians nine twenty six, which we read earlier about giving up certain freedoms, even those good things. He said he's an apostle and I have to lay down other freedoms. I'll do whatever it takes to proclaim the gospel. Get those things aside. My freedoms aren't the most important thing to me. This gospel is. He talks about how there was those who in those days where athletes would have to pledge to the games, whether the Olympics or Isthmus games, there's a pledge they took 10 months before the games. If you're going to represent your city state, represent those, you pledge a pledge to cast aside sin, cast aside those things which would get in the way of your training. If you're going to represent your country, your city, your place, you have to be sold out and dedicated to this one purpose. And they had to take an oath and a pledge. And Paul says, so do we pledge that kind of tenacity for this goal. Except we aren't in training, we're actually running the race. So after talking about the things that need to be cast off, the author then talks about the things that need to be picked up. Endurance, perseverance has to be picked up and taken with us. Now, That is the characteristic that keeps you going 
when it hurts. Resolve to finish despite pain, illness, hardship, or injury. I have a friend from Sunday school class, Marty Coleman, who helps people develop endurance for the Dallas Running Club. I'd be willing to bet that if I asked him today where I could pick up a good pair of running shoes, he would tell me if it had to do with a hydration pack or maybe those funky little gel bars that are supposed to give you energy while you're running, some of that stuff he could tell me. But I bet if I asked what store I could go pick up some endurance in, he'd look at me funny. It can't be purchased. It has to be developed. It is mental and it is physical and it is difficult and it takes time and it takes work and endurance is something that we have to develop for ourselves. Those who were following Jesus at this time period were already doing so. They've been doing so through persecution. As it says in Romans 5.3, suffering produces endurance. They were already dealing with that a little bit. It's difficult sometimes to keep going when things aren't going well, and they were dealing with it. And the author also gives a runner's trick here. Runners will often keep their eyes fixed on something forward to focus on that. Just get to the next thing. He says, keep your eyes fixed them on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. My buddy Morgan Woodard's a pastor down in Central Texas at a small church. And Morgan's a big guy, but he's a distance runner. He loves to run. Running 15, 20 miles, that's Morgan's idea of a good time. That's my idea of a death march. But Morgan's trick is, and he always says this, he looks for a lamp post or a fence post or a fire hydrant that's off 150, 200 yards. He says, I can run to that. And he runs to that point, and right before he gets there, he looks at something else. It's just 150 yards or 200 yards away, and he goes, I can make it that far. And he does that mile after mile as he pounds the pavement and just keeps going. Here, the author isn't just talking about keeping our eyes on Jesus as that point we're running to, but also it's literally to look away from what's around us. To look away from the fact that there's hardship and suffering in continuing on in the race. If we're going to have endurance, then we need to look away from the things. We can't just pay attention to those things that are making it so difficult. We have to look away from those circumstances. I'm reminded of Stephen. We've talked about Stephen a few times. Stephen was a deacon who started preaching. And because of his preaching, he gets dragged out and stoned and killed right there in Jerusalem. What's remarkable to me is that he has a vision of Jesus as he's about to be killed and he fixes his eyes on Jesus. And like Jesus, he is able to say in the last moments of his race, forgive them. Turning away from his present circumstances and looking in the face of Christ, he is able to muster that kind of compassion and sacrificial love. That's what's required when that sacrificial love thing gets real and actually becomes sacrificial. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith, that's Jesus, God himself who came and ran the race. And the author here describes Jesus doing exactly the same things that we are being called to do. Jesus looked away from the shame of the cross 
and the condemnation and looked to the joy set before him. He disregarded literally to look away from the shame and scorn and received the prize seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it says, consider him so that you may not lose heart. So that's verses 2 and 3 of Romans chapter 12. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. The problem is it isn't verse 1. While Hebrews chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 is very much the same thing we've been hearing from Paul, verse 1 is something new. A new idea developed by that next generation, the ones who are following. And that one talks about something completely different. See, in those days, they had long-distance races. Those things existed. But what they didn't have were team sports. The biblical author is referring to something brand new. I don't know that the person in Hebrews didn't invent it. I ran track in high school. You wouldn't know it looking at me now, and that's okay. But I did. I ran track, and we lived in the absolute middle of nowhere, Um, and to get to my friend's houses when my parents who had three other kids to be thinking about couldn't take me there, I would hop on my bike and ride there. And partially because I was bored and didn't want to hang out around my aforementioned siblings, I would leave, uh, as you do, and I would hop on my bike and I would go and it was several miles. And we lived near a place called Valley Mills. It was appropriately named because it was in a valley And so if I wanted to go to the Dairy Queen or something like that, I could ride into Valley Mills, but then you have to ride back out of Valley Mills. So I was on my bike quite a bit, and I didn't realize that I had been developing endurance and muscles and all kinds of things. And then came the fun thing where at my school, it worked out this way. You had a binary question before you. Do you want to play sports or do you not? If you want to play sports, congratulations, you play them all. I don't understand people who go, I'm going to try out for the, or I'm going to go for this position. That wasn't an option. I didn't pick what position I was going to play. I didn't pick what sports I was going to do. Did you want to do sports? Then you're doing all of them or none of them. Pick one. That was it. And so while I wanted to play football in the fall, that meant that in the spring I had to do something. And that meant that every single person, it doesn't matter how much you didn't want to, was the track team. Turns out that if you're a skinny kid who's been riding your bike around and running away from bullies, you're pretty quick. I quickly found out I was the fastest kid in class. So my coach signed me up for what I consider to be the most miserable experience he possibly could have handed me, the mile relay. In case you're not familiar with this form of punishment, the 1600 meter relay is the very last race at every track meet, or at least it was when I was in school. And that means that you've been there since probably 7.30 that morning, which in Texas means it was freezing cold with wind. But don't worry, because at noon it's boiling hot and you have a sunburn. And by the time you're running your race, it's about 10 p.m. It's the last race. And that means that everyone else is done. And they're relaxing, listening to music and sitting along the signs. And they're all watching when you go to come up to your race. The 1,600-meter relay which is approximately a mile, is four laps of a modern-day track. There are four runners, and they carry around 
a baton. Now, if you are not aware of this, it may make sense to you, but the baton is actually the thing that has to make it around the track. Everyone else is just carrying the thing. You drop the baton and keep running, it doesn't get you anywhere. Congratulations, good on you for exercising, you lost the race. I didn't get to be the first leg, the second leg, or the third leg. No, I got to be the anchor leg. Because again, there is no democracy in Crawford, Texas. (laughs) The anchor leg is supposed to be the fastest. And by the time you run your race, not only are all the other events done, but every single other person is done running. You get handed the baton whether you want it or not. You don't get to choose the situation, the speed, the timing, your opponent. You don't get to start out equally with everybody else. Sometimes you're 50 meters behind and there's nothing you can do. You take the baton as it is handed to you. And that's just the way it works. My mom, knowing I was incredibly discouraged about having to do this, I would have run anything else happily, knowing this would always write in my lunchbox the same thing for that. It was Isaiah 40, 30 through 31. She would write it on a napkin. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount on wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And then she added this. You have his word on it. And I would run that race with so much pressure because everyone else had run theirs. And sometimes for the district track meet, it would come down to that everyone's points were totaled and all that mattered is where I crossed the finish line as to whether or not we won or lost. And that's a lot of pressure. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, before we get into who's in the crowd, let's understand why it's there. These are the people who just ran. They did their job. They've run their leg, and now they watch. The point of the crowd is that if we fail, it isn't a personal failure, but a public disgrace. In Hebrews 11, the author has just named off the heroes and heroines of the faith of the Old Testament. You heard part of the list read off earlier as we read it together. We have Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. They could have gone through Deborah and they did go through Rahab. Old Testament heroes and heroines ran despite the fact that they didn't have the revealed hope in Christ. They ran because God said so. They ran. They ran and they ran. They ran despite beatings and persecution. They ran. And this is what the cloud of witnesses was in their day when the author is writing to his people. He says, they ran, so run. But in our day, there are far more people in those stands, far more in that cloud. Because the followers of Jesus started running and carrying the good news of Easter everywhere they went. Not like a leisurely stroll, but as if it was their sole purpose remaining in life. No names on the road to Emmaus ran seven miles back to Jerusalem to declare he is risen. Peter ran away from shame and into purpose despite certain death. The paralytic healed, ran into the temple to tell everyone he knew. Philip ran from persecution and into the pulpit proclaiming good news to the Samaritans. He ran up to a chariot and sent the gospel like a vine off thriving in the desert. Saul ran into Jesus on the road to Damascus and ran the race carrying the gospel to every person he ran into. They carried the gospel like a baton, each generation taking their turn to carry whether they wanted it or not. 
Early church mothers and fathers ran because Easter changed everything. They endured persecution, beatings, death, political upheaval from the fact that their nation, state, and race was no longer that which they are identified by. It was the kingdom of God. And when that kind of thing happens, it causes you problems. They ran. They ran the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. It took almost 1,500 years, but it finally reached the new world, which wasn't so new after all. And that gospel message came mixed with awful baggage like national interest above kingdom mightiness, racism, sexism. Many who claim Christ did awful things when they got here and it still bring us shame. But somehow, despite the church's failings, despite the followers' failings, despite everything else, the gospel kept coming. In 1841, a number of Baptists moved from Kentucky to Breckenridge, Texas. In 1865, some of them started a church named Mount Calvary Baptist Church. Their pastor was Joseph Jenning Butler. In 1867, they built a building having just been in the world with the gospel out there, not having any particular place to beat. In 1885, the church started running in a nearby community, Richardson. In 1954, Mount Calvary changed its name to the First Baptist Church of Richardson. Later, they would have problems. Pastors had to step down due to illness. They had church splits, financial difficulties. On two separate occasions, they had to find new buildings when the ones they were meeting in were destroyed by tornadoes. But the church was still running. Once facing severe financial trouble during the Depression and a perceived lack of commitment, they wrote the church members stating that the church would grow or die based on their decisions. And they were absolutely right. That's the way it goes. The only ones who keep the church running are those members pumping the legs every single day. In ups and downs, they kept banding it together, kept running, and just didn't give up. Like the early church, they kept finding needs and kept finding ways to meet them. They reached out to their community in and outside the walls. During the Depression, they kept giving money to the orphans and talking to the lost, despite the fact that they were dealing with debt, financial problems, and a real question as to whether or not the church would make it. In 1969, they started teaching ESL to reach out to those who couldn't understand the English version of the message they were preaching. Members reached out in their community in Richardson, DFW, U.S., and to the ends of the earth. Church members in the church went to live as missionaries in Ghana, Nigeria, Japan, Hong Kong, and Chile. In 1987, they recognized that men and women could both be called to serve as deacons, recognizing women's work in the church for centuries, proclaiming the gospel and serving the needs of the congregation and community right in front of them. As life is, pastors come and go, and they went through eight pastors before 1950. And then other faithful followers served as pastors and the names changed, but the intensity did not. We had Pastor Lands and Pastor Fant, Pastor Keith, Pastor Harbor, Pastor Orozco. But the church kept running. The congregation kept pumping their legs and carrying that baton. Over the course of their history, the buildings got destroyed or were abandoned for new ones, but those weren't the church. Programs came and went. Whether they were able to meet weekly or not changed a number of times over the course of the years, but none of that was what made them the church. There were times the membership grew with the population and times the population grew and the church did not. The changed bylaws, changed worship, changed names, changed locations, but what made them the church never changed. Despite financial problems and empty pulpits, despite chaotic world filled with war, racism, sexism, and depression, they kept running. 
after Easter, his followers are running through life to pick up those who are broken down along the way. They ran the gospel to the brokenhearted, the dangerous, the arrogant, the sick, the orphans, the widows, the terrorists, the whole world. After Easter, Jesus, God himself, finished his race, ran it, and handed the baton off to his church. The gospel wasn't inscribed on a rock somewhere off of Arapahoe for the citizens of Richardson to find. It was carried by men and women giving their all to run their leg. People from Peter all the way until now. For 158 years, members of this church have carried their baton to take the gospel where it is today. And they sit in our stands and they lean forward with eyes wide open to see the baton handed off. Therefore, since Easter is real, Therefore, since all are welcome, therefore, since you are called to go out, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, run.